Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. In the midst of the worst pandemic in 100 years, addressing gaps in access to healthcare services in Canada has become a priority. But it's not a problem born out of COVID-19. It's an issue plaguing Canada's fractured provincial system for years. But it's reared its ugly head as elective procedures from cancer treatments to plastic surgery are pushed back. Between March and June of last year, the estimated backlog in Ontario was almost 150,000 surgeries, with more than an average 11,000 additional cancellations every single week. But putting more nurses and doctors on the front lines of COVID-19 and to address the mounting crisis of delayed surgeries is not an immediate fix. For insight into why and what the solutions look like, I spoke with Dr. John Kingdom, the chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Toronto and a frontline obstetrician at Mount Sinai Hospital. We were joined by Rosalie Wanch, senior analyst at the C.D. Howe and author of the report Addressing Labour Supply Shortages in Canadian Healthcare. We began by discussing the fact that when we think of gaps in access to healthcare services, we might be inclined to think of physical infrastructure, but equally important is the human capital that needs to be deployed. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And really, I think that that was the motivation for um, really doing this research in, in the first place was at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, you know, there are people getting sick and they require care, but a big worry from the health perspective is protecting the healthcare workers because if they get sick, not only do they have to stay home and, you know, suffer the consequences, but they also are not available to help treat patients exactly when we have a surge in healthcare demand. And so the human side of healthcare, I think is at least as important, if not more important, than how we organize infrastructure or the physical locations of things. At the end of the day, if you don't have a doctor or a nurse to provide care, it doesn't really matter if you have the building. Yeah, I completely agree with you. The median age of the of the workforce in medicine is slowly rising. I have a lot of physicians who are working in very senior years and, for example, in current times feel quite vulnerable with COVID. I mean, I've experienced of colleagues not prepared to come to work and I understand that, especially without vaccination. Uh, Canada is a, a, a net underproducer of uh, physicians uh, for its population. We have a rapidly growing population compared to other countries with immigration, which is obviously creates vibrancy in our economy, but it brings in people with you know um, important healthcare needs. So uh, you know, the, the growth rate of our we, we fall steadily behind in terms of production rates of new doctors per capita. Um, and when we take into account the uh, projected you know workforce contributions, you know, per 100 physicians graduating today compared to, say, 20 years ago, we should be adjusting our numbers to take account of uh, work, work, work patterns that people desire when they, you know, are graduating today. So, yes, it's, it is all about people, absolutely. Uh, and work, people working in teams. So, John, give us a sense as how COVID-19 has revealed the weakness in the human capital side of the equation. On the front lines, what are you seeing? Well, at the front lines, we see... Um, people being brave coming to work, but facing COVID without vaccination. Um, I mean, I've worked on the front line from day one and I watched people come to work really scared because it's gone on a lot longer than SARS. I mean, I was fully gowned in SARS in the early 2000s when it was killing people. Uh, but here something came along, just, you know, a much, much bigger problem. And then of course, you know, we have our trainees who are younger, they've got young families, they feel vulnerable. 
uh, and they're very frontline as well. So yes, absolutely. Um, uh, we've been hit hard and challenged. Of course, the universities tried extremely hard to support our learners, and I'm proud of the fact of how the university has done that. Uh, but for example, today, like the university doesn't control the vaccination policy. They can only devolve that through the uh, hospitals where the medical students are and the residents are. So, yeah, there are weaknesses in the system. Um, but I mean, we uh, generally are, you know, all of these new stresses and since COVID are on top of the infrastructure deficits that we've, all, we've always chronically had over many years. So, Rosalie, what role has the dependence on part-time lower wage employees played in the crisis that we're seeing play out right now in long-term care? I'm, I'm glad you brought up long-term care because I think, you know, it's obviously there are other sectors of healthcare, but I think it provides a good case study example of, say, some of the issues that we went into COVID with and then how COVID affected those things. And so I guess I'd just start off with Canada has one of the lowest ratios of long-term care workers to seniors in the OECD. We have about 3.5 workers for every 100 seniors, and the international stat standard is 8.2. So just to start off with, we don't actually have the amount of care staff uh, to provide care in long-term care, even in normal times, that would be up to the international standard. And so when we that's the situation going in, any worker affected by COVID or workers that would work at multiple facilities to fill out a full-time job, just simply due to the environment, were then you know, forced to work in only one location to control the spread of disease. But that really affects the labor availability at these long-term care facilities or the staff available to actually provide the needed care to residents. And so really we've got Ne sort of negatives piling on top of negatives that result in once uncontrolled infection gets into a long-term care home, that there really is not the resources or people available to provide both regular care and then the emergency surge capacity type care that's required to manage COVID. John, how do you think we got to that stage? I think the notion of people, you know, it's socially, it's okay that people can have multiple uh, part-time jobs that benefits um, you know, is, is sad in some ways, in my opinion. And um, if people could choose between full-time work with benefits or they may personally choose to have a part-time job that maximizes the labor market, I agree with that point. I, I actually wasn't aware that we were so far behind. I mean, you're telling me here that the deficit for long-term care workers is, is 100% against the OECD standard. I mean, I don't think that the, uh, the gap for physicians is that wide, but I mean, it might be 25%. The key point really is in, in general in healthcare, human infrastructure investment, we are behind. Part of the problem might be that we don't have a Canadian health service, unlike the national health service in the UK. So we can't plan nationally. Nationally, we advise, you know, uh, was it 16 provincial healthcare systems? And it's, uh, of course, a big challenge to sort of think nationally, but putting forward arguments based on national data is very important. Because at the end of the day, we are one country of what, 38 million people. Um, but we should try and think uh, in a single unified fashion as much as we possibly can. Another thing that sort of just adds to um, thinking about that, thinking about uh, healthcare delivery, not necessarily from a national, like delivered nationally, but from a national perspective, is the um, really the shift and the push towards virtual that we've just seen. Um, you know, in Canada, it's a huge country. 
So just there are challenges in providing care to rural and remote regions. The specialists may be thousands of kilometers from some of their patients, and there's lots of travel required. If physicians are able to provide care virtually for some types of indications or some types of care, then the ability to provide care outside of the region in which one lives actually sounds actually becomes a more viable way to, um, if not increase access to healthcare services writ large, at least fill in some gaps or be able to provide more equitable care to those rural and remote regions that were more difficult to access. And so as we move forward with virtual care, digitization, and modernization of the healthcare system writ large, I think it's a good time to start asking some of these questions about um, how we regulate healthcare and also how we plan really on the human capital side. Yeah, great stuff. I mean, it is going to unleash uh, tremendous efficiency gains. And until COVID came along and Zoom uh, usage, the other the alternative platforms pre-Zoom were clunky and difficult. Um, and we're getting over HIPAA barriers re uh, regarding the um, safe you know, confidentiality. But I, see, I mean, but the best example in my mind is mental health care. I mean, in my work in pregnancy, in high-risk pregnancy, you know, 25 to 30 percent of people access mental health support. So uh, these have been built up tremendously. Um, it's also much more efficient because people are moving uh, from efficiently from one patient to the next. Family medicine access will get much stronger. I mean, my own spouse is in family medicine, and uh, they're filtering people to come into the office for care in person from a much expanded uh, plat virtual platform care, which people find very uh, efficient. And just finally, you know, I agree when you sort of look at access in, in, in into the northern parts of our, our province or in just northern parts of Canada in general. I mean, devolved expertise by virtual platforms is um, very, very possible. I agree with you. I think that uh, a lot of focus and investment should be put into place to have sustained efforts in virtual medical care, which I agree with you is the fastest way to narrowing the equity gap in healthcare. Well, Rosalie, you point out in your report that the Commonwealth Fund International Health Policy Survey shows that compared to other countries, access to regular primary care providers, short notice uh, appointments, alternative arrangements made by doctors is very poor in this country. COVID, though, helped reveal that we do have these virtual alternatives to get people in front of a doctor. Absolutely. And I think really in thinking about um, access as well, and uh, John brought up some some things about the way that people the ways in which people like to work. Um, and so one thing that comes out from the surveys is that access to uh, physicians via email to ask your questions or to evening or uh, weekend appointments. Uh, compared to other countries, we do lag substantially, at least in terms of patient perceptions of these things. There's only so much we can ask out of a limited medical and caregiving staff, especially right now, I think would not be the time to be asking um, physicians who have been working through COVID to give up their weekends. But we do have the infrastructure sits there on the weekends. And so if it's day surgeries, dealing with backlogs, or dealing with the surge that we see it, I think that there are ways to improve access or at least the convenience of care through expanding hours or um, being more flexible about physician working arrangements, 
how people access care. And so that it really leads into some of these questions about virtual and scopes of practice. But overall, I really think that there's there's ways to improve access uh, with the health staff that we have in terms of expanding the hours that it's available or ways that we can deliver care virtually. Um, so that's one side of the coin is how do we get more productivity or more efficiency out of the human capital we have? And then on the other side, knowing that we, we, are, we do have a low supply there and that part of the answer to some of these questions will actually be increasing the number of caregivers. So it, depending on the context of the situation, um, any or all of these tools might be useful. John, you pointed out that your your spouse is a, a GP. You know, Willie Nelson urged mamas to not let their babies grow up to be cowboys, but his recommendation to that become doctors, maybe he needed to be a little more specific in the kind of doctors. As you point out, Canada already has more GPs and nurses than most OECD countries, but the wait times for everything from cardiology services to vascular surgery, surgery startlingly high even before COVID-19 pushback electives. What do we see as the solution to resolving the imbalance of general practitioners to GPs? Well, first of all, there are, there are major, um, major problems in the uh, access to family medicine services independently of access to specialists. They're both underperform, un, under, under capacity. That's the correct word, I believe. And so in family medicine, the issue is, you know, can you have a viable career choice if you're a senior medical student to be a family physician. Well, if you're going to go into running a business on fee-for-service, uh, OHIP codes, or it's, it's not, well, it's viable, but it's not viable at a, at a reasonable income level that is reflective of the cost and commitment and time put in to get a medical degree. So the solution is, is through um, um, comprehensive care, uh, where you join a family health team or a family health organization, which is what's called a capitation model of care. So the, the compensation is for the quality of care by you know, predefined metrics in a, in a registered geographic constrained practice. Unfortunately, uh, those numbers are capped despite population growth. So people as with uh, senior medical students uh, may not choose a career of family medicine because they know that they can't get a family health team or a family health organization capitation uh, model of employment. And that's we, we need to challenge that to champion the career of family medicine. The only other alternative in, in community care is to grow and champion the physician assistant uh, career model, which is a two-year degree. It's like a mini medical school. Many people go into it with a very wide range of experiences in life. So it's a highly effective capacity building career model as long with nurse practitioner. But, you know, I mean, I've lived in, in Ontario for 22 years and ever since I've been here, it's a constant problem. Even today, there's probably more than a million people who if they could get a family doctor tomorrow, they'd actually get out there and get one. And uh, the, uh, we have to do, we have to increase that. On the hospital side, uh, the biggest problem we face is lack of access to the operating room to operate on patients. I mean, you can't start a new operation after two o'clock in the afternoon because operating rooms are shut at 3.30, 3.30 p.m. Why is that? Because of the nature of um, nursing employment. It's um, a regulated profession. Uh, nursing could uh, 
it's expensive. Um, so it's, it, remember, patients going to hospital are technically liabilities against the uh, fixed uh, operating budgets of hospitals. But I mean, in, taking women's health where I'm in, it's an absolute tragedy because we have thousands and thousands of women piling up needing gynecologic surgical procedures. The morbidity that people will suffer from thousands of uh, people on waiting lists can only be solved by a radical increase in use of the operating room. So if you've got 10 operating rooms in a hospital and at 3.30, nine of them fall silent and one continues as an emergency operating room overnight, it's, you know, and that's five days a week. So, you know, from Friday at four o'clock in the afternoon to Monday morning, there's one operating room working, but there's nine silent operating rooms. I mean, that's, the, you know, that the infrastructure is just not being used. Rosalie, you found, and this surprised me because it, it didn't seem to jive with everything I've learned about capitalism, that you found that the more you pay a doctor, the fewer services per capita we see. So simply paying doctors more isn't enough of an incentive to increase the number of doctors? So when just anyone, not, not a doctor, anyone at all, when your income increases, there's a choice to make about whether you want to keep working the exact same amount that you did or whether you want to say maybe work a little less and have more time off. And whether someone will actually work more or less depends on whether the increase in income either is enough to incentivize them to work more hours or would they prefer to, you know, spend less time working with that higher income and have more leisure. And really what what the analysis in this paper shows is that it's likely that Canada is a little bit too far along that curve, or at least in some provinces in particular, it appears to be that way, where it, when you increase uh, the costs per service or average incomes, the effect on the number of doctors is, is relatively small, but you do see a decline in the number of hours that the physicians in that province actually spend on direct patient care. When you increase pay, you might get more physicians to enter the market, but the physicians that are already working choose to treat patients for a few fewer hours. Really, the, the trend is pretty consistent over time, and it isn't necessarily caused by pay. There are other factors like an aging workforce and um, just personal choices and how much people want to work. But over the last few decades, the number of hours that physicians have spent on direct patient care has declined. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, as the workforce, as the gender ratio has changed uh, dramatically over the last 30 to 40 years, uh, it'd be interesting to look at the uh, choice patterns that people are making um, uh, between the two uh, genders. Um, and secondly, the proportion of physicians whose significant other is a physician, because then they're, uh, they'll make life choices as a combined force together, as opposed to individuals. And um, prob there's probably a rising proportion of physicians who, who are married to or have a significant other as a physician, uh, uh, in which case I could compare some of those choices um, where one person choosing to work, um, enjoy their job and work part-time and somebody and the other par partner uh, works, works more full-time. Those are uh, you know, intriguing, interesting issues to play out. What they show is, is this another factor in the equation as to... Uh, as to why the public feels underserved by physicians, both at the community level and at the hospital level. At the hospital level, a lot of the underservice is actually capacity constrained by the 
hospital employees, remember physicians are not hospital employees, they're obviously trying to push efficiency in hospital, you know, as the doctors would would like to uh, operate more. And I was in, in during the night doing a five-hour operation with a colleague as an emergency, but that was the only operating room that was open all night. A lot of the time, if you want to recruit more people to an industry, or if as an employer, you you want more staff and you're not getting getting the right applicants, then then the signal would be to increase the salary. And so really the point that I'm trying to make is the analysis doesn't suggest that increasing incomes would be as effective at increasing access to physicians and healthcare services as some other um, avenues to doing so. One being possibly looking at the entry pathways to medicine as it as in how many doctors are graduating, how many Canadian or how many people are in residencies in Canada. And so that's really a key factor in the supply. It's likely, and just really from the analysis, it suggests that increasing incomes can only increase access to healthcare services so much. And we are near, we're really sort of at the point where it's not clear that increasing incomes would actually encourage more people to go to medical school and become doctors, or if it would, uh, access to medical school or residencies is already incredibly limited. And so looking at the supply side, other than uh, separate from incomes and what people might earn or the choices that students will make, uh, I think it's much more important that we look at uh, other avenues to increase the efficiency of our existing resources, like opening operating rooms past 3.30 would be a perfect example. What about upskilling nurses and other care providers? Upskilling nurses, facilitating, um, I think that's a little bit what we were alluding to with the idea of providing care to northern and remote regions and the uh, physician assistant pathway where, you know, you might not be able to get uh, specialists in certain regions. It might not make sense. They're the the number of patients that they would need to see would wouldn't make wouldn't make sense for them to live there, but they could uh, you know consult with GPs or physician assistants who are providing care um, can provide advice and in that way GPs, nurses, physicians assistants can be in some ways specialist empowered, and that's what we are seeing in elderly care is sort of this creep of the scope of practice that. What would have at one point maybe been a referral to a gerontologist is now part of routine primary care as the system adapts, education adapts in response to the demographic changes in society. And so I think growing scopes and thinking about how we can combine inputs to get the most efficiency out of the system and also provide high quality care, it's it's really a fine balancing point to get to, but I think the tools we need to get to that balance point is not salary or that's too blunt an instrument to get to the results that we're looking for. As we look at the impact that COVID-19 has had uh, on the entire healthcare system, we see that it's led to a backlog of surgeries by as many as 11,000 a week. John, give us a sense as to what the domino effect of that looks like. Well, first of all, we're seeing in, in uh in the area, in my own specialty, that uh, cancer diagnoses are more advanced, so it's more comp complex to try and address and and, and solve. Um, uh, but you know, many other suffering diagnoses that people have requiring gynecologic surgery, uh, people have you know no idea when they're going to get operated on. So not only is there specific health affected with the diagnosis, but their general morale and health is is affected, and their ability to participate 
in society and in the workplace is clearly negative impacted for a long time. People are beginning to read that they, you know, might not get their surgery for perhaps two years. I'd like you to know, by the way, that for, for example, pelvic floor dysfunction after childbirth or incontinence, that people were probably facing wait times of a year anyway before we had COVID. So, I mean, there's, there's a huge inequity, particularly in, in women's health surgery. That I know, of course, reflects, uh, reflects my bias. Um, but, what, but, I mean, the point against the discussion here is that it's not like we have a labour force deficit. Nine out of ten gynaecologists would, would want more main operating room time. They'd, they'd love to have it. Uh, so, you know, well, let's get the operating room started at 7 a.m. and let's go at it till 10 o'clock, seven days a week. And, you know, I'll I'll challenge you to, to make sure that there are surgeons and assistants in the room doing the procedures because they will be. But it's going to require uh, a willingness to actually uh, allow the physicians to unleash their full capacity to do the operations and get people better. John, Rosalie, thank you very much for your time. I had a lot of fun. Thanks very much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Dr. John Kingdom is the chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Toronto and a frontline obstetrician at Mount Sinai Hospital. Rosalie Wanch is a senior analyst at the CD Howe and author of the report, Addressing Labor Supply Shortages in Canadian Healthcare. Visit cdhowe.org to read the full report. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, stay safe. You've been listening to the CD Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.